the Premier League on OTB. Exclusive Premier League live commentaries every Sunday. The very best expert analysis on your phone and for free. Download the OTB Sports app now. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. And you're welcome back to Off The Ball here on News Talk. John Duggan with you through until 7, sitting in for Joe Malloy today. Time now for the Sunday Paper Review. We're delighted to be joined by the Virgin Media broadcaster, Tommy Martin, and the Irish Independent sports writer, Michael Verney. Donegal and Offaly's finest here on a Sunday. How are you both? That's a, no- that's a novel pairing. Yeah, I don't Very think... Very novel, yeah. Good, I John. I don't think there's been an All-Ireland final between Donegal and Offaly. There might have been a semi-final uh, somewhere along the road, but I don't well, know. John, we can, we, we can count on one hand the amount that we've, we've been in, so no, there definitely hasn't been on my count anyway. Yeah. Same, no. same for us. Our, our eras were very fleeting and never came at the same time, so... Yeah, and this Donegal Hurling's not really at the pitch yet of, 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 of Offaly Hurling. Um, but great to see you, great to hear you. Uh, for anybody, you can listen on News Talk and you can watch the lads on the digital and social channels for Periscope and Twitter at Off The Ball, YouTube, Facebook um, and uh, the OTB Sports app. So great to have you for the next hour and a half to, I suppose, talk about the night before. Uh, I suppose that's the best place to start after we go through the back pages. Um, this is the sun. If you can see it there, yeah, you can. Uh, just awful. Uh, so I'll just move, move that across a little bit more. Uh, just awful. Uh, Duffy Gold saves Gaffer Kenny, another hard defeat. Fans boo as World Cup bid is crushed in stalemate. Uh, so you can see it there. That's the back of the sun. I think this is going to be a, a common theme when I look at this. It's Azerbaijan. bye um, This is uh, the back of the Daily Star. So Republic of Ireland won, Azerbaijan won, and a half mil Mo. So Mo Salah wants a staggering £500,000 a week to extend his stay at Liverpool. Um, uh, we will bail on racist Gareth in plea. Uh, Gareth Bale says Wales players are prepared to walk out if they suffer racist abuse. Obviously, we saw that disgusting abuse levelled at uh, England players in the game against Hungary the other night. Back of the Sunday Mirror. It's a crying shame. This is on the Republic of Ireland's one-all draw with Azerbaijan. Shane Duffy saving our blushes. What else is on the back of that? More, that's pretty much the same story about Salah. 500,000 a week deal to stop uh, Salah leaving to cop him. Uh, We deserve to win this 4-1, insists Stephen Kenny. That's the back of the Sunday Mirror Sport. Obviously, his post-match comments. Sunday People as well. It's an English paper, but um, Bale will uh, walk if we're abused. So pretty much the same stuff around the back pages. But it's all about one thing, and that's the Republic of Ireland. Uh, I thought this one was interesting uh, Rescue Act and Kenny I'm not going anywhere but the World Cup is gone so Stephen Kenny acknowledging that the World Cup dream is, is in tatters I think it pretty much was after the Luxembourg uh, defeat earlier in the year but uh, Katie Taylor on top Irish boxing champ defence title with ease this was against Jennifer Han last night Katie Taylor re- retaining her lightweight belts and this is Sunday Times plenty to go through there and over the next hour and a half the Daily Mail doesn't really mince its words. Uh, not good enough. Uh, World Cup hopes wither as Ireland held by Azerbaijan and Faro progress lost as wait for competitive win drags on. A disconsolate Stephen Kenny looking down on the Aviva Stadium turf. Philip Quinn writing there. And then a relentless drive. A daunting task for me to prevent a mighty Dublin surge to another title. The ladies football final. We've got Cora Staunton at Croke Park later on to go through that. Uh, the Observer. Cricket on the back. But then Jonathan Wilson will get to this a bit later. Drives of the Petro Clubs. PSG City and Chelsea have eclipsed the crisis hit Old Guard talking about the lament of Barcelona in Spain and uh, also Real Madrid uh, we also have the Sunday World good is over uh, Ireland's World Cup dream dies in front of fans Stephen Kenny's future as Ireland manager is under the microscope again writes Roy Curtis after his latest Aviva humiliation 
and then a lot of previews of the All-Ireland uh, finals uh, next weekend Mayo and Tyrone and Paul McGrath the book stops with boss Stephen Kenny and we'll get to that piece that he did in just a moment and to finish the kind of back page visuals uh, is the Sunday Independent with the best headline I've seen today frustration once again Duffy to the rescue but draw offers no comfort to Kenny's strugglers and uh, Dominant Taylor in cruises to victory so Katie Taylor flying the flag and Leona Maguire is doing the same at the moment in, in Ohio with the Solheim Cup with Europe five and a half to two and a half ahead and open all four foursomes matches this morning over in the United States and the business as usual post pandemic this is Eamon Sweeney writing that nothing's changed the song remains the same despite all the pandemic that of the Premier League spending which topped over a billion so I think Tommy Martin there's only one place to start that is the national team the boys in green the biggest show in town and a show that's not really entertaining us that much um, on a consistent basis anyway yeah oh, it's, I really wish I didn't have to talk about this because it was a tough it was a tough watch yesterday um, sort of in the cold light today I'm trying to sort of find a bit of a balance on it because after Wednesday I was very positive about things and I think a bit like yourself John I thought look let's this is progress we are seeing progress that word now that is well I tell you that word that has become important because it's Roy Barrett as chairman of the FAI board Stephen Kenny's bosses you know he was asked would Stephen Kenny get a new contract and he said uh, if he didn't qualify for the World Cup and he said if there is a continuing sense of progress then yeah absolutely so that's what people are looking for and on Wednesday night she thought yeah absolutely they well well set up um, offered a threat, played really good stuff and you know agonizing defeat and all that but it was a sense of progress but I was on air with um, Richard Dunn and Damien Delaney the, night, the following night and I, I asked them that question should it should they be should he be offered a new contract now should the uh, the FAI back their man and both of them said hold on a minute Saturday will tell a tale um, this that juncture this juncture now was the most important moment can they back it up on Saturday and not happen what happened against Luxembourg and unfortunately, it it happened not quite as badly as against Luxembourg, but it happened again. Um, so, so in my own personal point of view, not that it matters in the big scheme of things. I can't go from flip in twenty four hours from being supportive and, and thinking he's the right man for the job to saying Kenny out. But I think the tone across a lot of the newspaper coverage is, you know, there's a, there's a bit of there is a bit of a culture war in the sense there are those people entrenched. That he, we must back Kenny, whatever happens now, because it's all about this, this wonderful sunlit uplands in the future. And then there's the the, the camp who are who have been lined, ranged against them since the, since the start. Do you think that exists? Do you think that exists as a I real thing, Tommy? Yeah, I think I think it does. But I think as with any sort of polarized political positions, there's a whole ream, a whole majority of people in the middle who are floating in that and and are you know are, are sort of. In general, generally have goodwill towards what what's going on. But Can we we'll, sense if they're turning? We'll Can we make, sense if they're yeah. turning, Tommy, or not? It's very hard to. It's hard when you're getting text messaging, and most of them yeah. are negative. And it's hard when you're looking at Twitter. And there are, I think, there are a lot of factors here that are bigger than Stephen Kenny. Like I was just going through the goals that were, that were scored, Tommy. Um, one goal in four games against Wales and Denmark in the Nation League under the end of Martin O'Neill, Roy Keane reign in 2018. Seven goals in eight games for mixed qualifiers for the Euros. That Gibraltar game, remember, in the wind, uh, we got a lucky one nil win almost. Uh, it, it's very hard to put your finger on almost the mood, the mood music of the people in the middle. 
Well, Neil Reardon in the Irish Sun had a good pre-match piece yesterday which said that the, the, the tone of the Aviva crowd would finally give us a verdict as to whether the people were, were with Stephen Kenny and, and his project because you couldn't really tell on you know, the, the extremes of online opinion where, where people were. I think most people are reasonable, decent and will use the evidence of their own eyes. And I have to say... I thought it, I thought it was bad yesterday, you know. I, and and I'll read a bit from Eamon Sweeney's piece because I think he ticks a few of the things that wanted to um, that, that I think reflect a fair view of what people um, m might think about it. I don't know if your text lines are, are given the same. So he says Ireland must beat Serbia on Tuesday to prevent this qualifying campaign from de degenerating into one of our uh, one of the greatest fiascos in our football history. So it's a strong start. So from so what the fear was yesterday, going into yesterday, <clears throat> get a good result and we go into Serbia with momentum and whatever happens in the group, we're going places. Bad result and we've got Serbia coming to town. And John, I saw Serbia yesterday. I was We were covering the, the other matches on, on Virgin Media last night and we had dual screen job. But Serbia look, Serbia look good. You know, they, they, are, they are in a really good place. They've got quality and they've got serious goal threat. And I'm really worried about Ireland. I think we actually we might be better set up to play Serbia than we were against Azerbaijan. But just to read on, um, Eamon Sweeney says in the Sunday Indo, the huge hopes invested in Stephen Kenny's brave new world are dying on the vine and could perish altogether barring a redemptive victory in two days. And this is what really got a lot of people about, about yesterday. There seemed to be something grimly symbolic in the double substitution which took place after the hour yesterday. The subbing of Troy Parrott and Jason Malumbi and that of Aaron Connolly at halftime meant that three of Ireland's brightest young stars have been replaced by three uh, much more seasoned campaigners. Um, and the impression of a visionary being mugged by reality was enhanced when, seeking to save the game in the final 20 minutes, Ireland resorted to the traditional tactic of lashing hopeful crosses as the centre-backs joined the, the attack. That line there, the impression of a visionary being mugged by reality, that might not be, that might be fair or unfair, but that is a, a perception that you can't help that, that can't help but come through from from what happened yesterday and what what, what the, the balance of the 15 games is telling you is that you can't you know you can talk about the future and people people use the the line for you know international football as a results game as a cliche but what that means is it's it's not short-term sort of um, um lack of imagination you need results to give yourself time and momentum to give your players belief in what you're doing, to give space for what you're trying to do to grow. And he hasn't been getting those results. And that's why we're sitting here, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, back seemingly, at, I don't know whether it's rock bottom, people have used that line in the papers today as well. But, you know, the, the, I think Tommy Conlon says, it. you know, Wednesday was one step forward, yesterday was two steps back. It's never ending purgatory, I think. It's a drift, we're in, <laughs> exactly. we're in, we're in the middle of nowhere. Well, you know. The, decline of decline of the catholic church maybe it's uh maybe it all makes sense you know it's, it's our way of purging ourselves mark aller in the daily mail's writing uh, the paragraph i took out of his piece was as ambitious and laudable as Kenny's plan for Irish football is, there still needs to be an emphasis on the little things because they can trip you up, the little details, as uh, Trapattoni would have said. Makhmadov came into this game as Azerbaijan's danger man. He was their most potent attacking threat, having scored their only two goals in this qualifying campaign. And yet, no Irish player saw fit to close him down at the edge of the box. That was one of the more concerning elements of last night's performance at the Aviva. Eighth in the world, Portugal. 112th in the world, Azerbaijan. Uh, Michael Verney, when you're looking at Sunday sports writing, what are you picking out from the from the bones of this? I suppose. 
Yeah, just another line from Eamon Sweeney that kind of painted another fairly bleak picture. Azerbaijan came to Dublin off the back of a defeat by Luxembourg, their second in the year. In the last three years, they've also lost to Montenegro, Moldova, Kazakhstan, Kosovo and Belarus. Their manager is on the verge of being sacked and they are ranked 112th in the world between North Korea and Mozambique. Most of their team playing a domestic league rated 30th in Europe. Um, <laughs> there's, an, there's an awful lot in that um, and there's not much uh, by reading that you wouldn't think there's much quality in that and then just going to Paul McGrath's piece I think he he, he uh, adds to a point that Eamon has, has kind of delved into there as well he just said can we attack a team that comes to our house to defend so while we were set up uh, you know quite well defensively against Portugal when the boot is on the other foot and when we have to attack and we have to do the pressing and we have to do the pushing um, it was kind of some of the same old failings uh, coming home to roost again obviously we couldn't score again and then just a couple of lines from Paul McGrath that were interesting as well he just said but in the second half all we did was uh, we used to do all we did was what we used to do under Giovanna Trapattoni and Martin O'Neill we put balls in the box and hoped for someone to get a header on it there was no passing the ball around here and take it from me that kind of knock it in football is easy to defend you know what is coming and you know what the other team is trying to do there's no surprise no trick no variety uh, to the play so I think that's probably another worrying aspect is uh, we probably did try and play in the first half uh, we didn't get any rewards for it but that we reverted to type and by reverting to type I mean just that long ball that we would have that we're traditionally associated with and that's probably uh, I suppose it's probably only natural that you would be desperate uh, in desperate times and Paul McGrath just asked a couple of another couple of interesting questions he just says no other Irish manager would be indulged uh, with such results he said who would want the job who would take the job and then he just at the end of his piece he just said we need a Jack Charlton type figure to save us is that what we need and then he also brings up the fact that uh, in essence that we won't have a game of consequence until uh, March of 2023 when the next qualifier start because essentially we're out of the running for to qualify now so that would be exactly three years I think since Stephen Kenny took over um, it's, it'd be, you'd be hard pressed to think that the same man will be in charge at that stage if the results continue in the vein uh, that they have been in the ex-pros have an inside lads that we don't uh, as, as broadcasters and journalists and Paul McGrath played at two World Cups um, there's a frustration I feel from them that they know that it's about getting there and maybe that's the most important thing rather than the style and the and the, and the performances uh, and you can really feel that in a lot of their commentary can't you Tommy I think that's that's definitely the case there's also a, a sense uh, from the start that they weren't impressed with the the mood music around when Stephen Kenny Kenny came in, you know, I'm generalizing here across a few different generations. I mean, the, the Jack Charlton generation, and and you know maybe the more recent people like like Richard Dunn who played, um, you know, and some of the former managers as well. <clears throat> now, probably maybe unfairly from Stephen's point of view, but the perception was that, and he, you know, so I think Stephen's line was that he wanted to change the perception of Irish football around the world, and what people took out of that maybe unfairly that Stephen wasn't this probably wasn't what Stephen intended to, to get across but what people inferred from that was that everything that went before was crap was was long ball was was muck you know Andy Townsend rang up Paul Kimmage last year absolutely irate about some of the stuff that was being said he felt I don't know whether he's this was people telling him stuff and he was getting the wrong end of the stick 
he felt was being said about the Jack Charlton days and the football they, they played and he wanted to do a piece and ended up being a really good interview with, with Kimmage last year in the, in the Sunday Indo. I think a lot of those guys feel they're it's like it's like you're in a, a job and a new manager comes in <clears throat> you know like the office and the lads from Swindon and <laughs> they, 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 a new manager comes in and says right you lot you lot, you don't know what you're doing. I, I used to work at, you know, Acme Co across the road. I'm going to change the way you're doing. And people sit back and they go, oh, yeah, are you? And they, they fold their hands. I kind of feel like a lot of the old pros, the old ex-internationals have kind of been, have, have taken a sense that everything they did in their day wasn't, you know, modern progressive futuristic football. And there's been a little element of, uh, there's been certainly a lack of patience from them towards what Stephen Kenny's trying to do. I, I, I'm like you guys. You know, my opinion is, is no better than, than the man in the street. So I also uh, listened to the the experts, and we had Brian Kerr and, and Damien again on our international coverage yesterday. So I was asking them what what their sense of it was. First thing Damien said when he saw it, and I know you guys use Damien for your football coverage as well, and I think he's brilliant on on tactical uh, matters. Yeah. He looked at the team sheet and he said that formation that 3-4-3 is really good when you're um, defending and you're playing against a stronger team because it allows you to get five back but that you can also counter-attack really well because it, you get little pods of players together on the flanks like we saw in Portugal but it's not good when you're dominating the ball because you get outnumbered in midfield and he said that before the game and I think that transpired I think we started with a lot of huff and puff in the game but suddenly, once uh, Azerbaijan had survived the early onset, they played themselves into the game. They were able to bypass our midfield quite easily uh, because they were overloading us uh, with numbers-wise around the middle because they had three men and the kind of striker was dropping back and helping. And Brian's point of view was, and look, Brian has been there and done that and been in Stephen's position before. That that front three in that in which Stephen has invested an awful lot of patience and oh my god I really hope it pays off in time and already Adam Ida has progressed so much in, in the year but they are incredibly incredibly raw at this level at any level you know um, you know Aaron Connolly is not in a great situation with his club and not getting many minutes and you can see in his his performances fluctuate because of that Troy Parrott is, is finding his feet in League One and Ida as I say is, is, is in the fringes at Norwich and you know it's definitely progressed but but doesn't necessarily have a a goal threat and then you've got Malumbi who's got Preston on loan and is not not playing football in midfield as well and it's it's you just feel there's a lot of lot of youth um, in in that team and it, and Brian Brian's line is always international football is hard you come up against well organized teams of men who are not there to help you have a party in front of your home fans and it's a tough place for some of these these young lads to be at times. And it is when they score. <laughs> they can put all the players behind the ball. There you go. Uh, yeah, that's that's what, a very tough place to be. Yeah, uh, I just think, I'm just wondering, are there more factors at play than just Stephen Kenny or not Stephen Kenny? There are, I'm sure, plenty of candidates who can play attractive football and can get results. It's not about Kenny or not Kenny, but I just think there are many factors at play here. There is the fact that it emerged that the FAI was financially mismanaged in the past and is in... Uh, financial position that they would prefer not to be in and had to get a bailout from the taxpayer. There is the global nature now of the Premier League. It's harder for Irish players to break into that. There are issues like state support. And Michael, you're a horse racing man like myself. Horse racing in Ireland is under the Department of Agriculture. It's seen as an industry. Greyhound racing is seen as an industry. And they get huge amounts of public money every year. 
when soccer is the most participated sport in the country more people play soccer than any other sport but it gets a pittance now you have UEFA and you have FIFA um, can support associations and if associations are well run and you hope the FAI will be in the next few years then it should be able to stand alone but at the moment, we could do with more academy support. We could do more with more structural support to build an industry when we have now young lads not able to go to the UK. And maybe they shouldn't anyway. Maybe they should be following the example of Jamie McGrath, who went to Maynooth University. Or maybe they should be following the example of Josh Cullen, who's playing in Belgium now on a regular basis. And you could see that players who play regularly for their clubs generally tend to perform better than players who are gassed, as we've seen in a couple of examples over the last few days. So I think our expectations as a sporting nation are very very, very high. I think there's a lot of anger out there at, at the way football has been run in the country, and that's understandable. But the rugby team has never got to a World Cup semi-final in 35 years. And I wonder sometimes, do we have expectations that are grounded in our brilliant performances of getting to World Cups and Euros in the past, and that we can't let, get, let, let go of that? And there's a frustration then. We're just frustrated at the whole situation almost more than the manager. Michael, what do you think? Yeah, no, I'd agree. I'd agree. I'd agree with John. That John, our expectations are definitely very high. And I think something uh, like we talked about a lot of these players have struggling club careers. There's no point in saying any different. They've they're playing down the tiers and they're not playing that much. Um, they're not getting enough time on the pitch, and they, it distinctly looked like that. Like we were flagging big time in the second half yesterday. Um, and when we when you thought uh, when Duffy scored, you thought we'd push on, we'd show energy to try and get a you know a win, and if anything, uh, the boot was on the other foot, and it was Azerbaijan that were going for the win. And then just uh, as regards our expectations, uh, Paul McGraw also had in his column there, and kind of hadn't really thought about it like this. And maybe I'm not uh, you know au fait with soccer as much as I should be, but he just said uh, we've only qualified for two of the last ten Euros or World Cups, and I think when, when you put it like that, and you think. God, yeah, the last one. The last one is obviously when we beat Italy in, in 2016, and then you know before that, what are you looking at? Are you looking at 2002 before that? And it's just it's mad when you, when you put it that way. And maybe it's almost like you know expectations, uh, football-wise or GA-wise, in a county like Kildare. You know the pressure is always massive on whoever's manager of Kildare that they should be competing for all Ireland's um, or in around there. But traditionally they ha they haven't really been there. And while we have, uh, as a country in soccer, we have uh, got some great results, the Germany result and going back to ninety and ninety four and the Italy result in twenty sixteen, they're almost like asterisks in time. Uh, and when you look at the picture, bigger picture overall, we you know we haven't haven't been consistently at that level. And at the moment. Uh, we're definitely, you know, we're even below, uh, the, even the, the sanest person would have, you know, realistic expectations, but the way we're performing now are even well below what those realistic expectations would be for Irish soccer. And um, yeah, as I say, it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. As, as McGrath says, there's, there, there definitely are meaningful games between now and March 2023, because it, I think those games will decide whether Stephen Kenny is still there or not. But it's so disappointing to be heading into the rest of a campaign and not really have anything to look forward to. The only things that are going to be decided over the next while, basically, are will Kenny hold on to his job or will he not? John, just like, yeah. you know, without getting into the bigger picture about whether we've, our expectations as a nation are too high and across the board, I mean, with Irish football, our model has been completely disrupted and broken by, you know, the traditional model where we sent our young kids over 
to England to learn the game to become professional footballers and they played in the higher regions in England and, and we took the best of them and the best of the diaspora as well and made an international team out of them that is being that is that was that was already being thrown out the window by the uh, growth of the Premier League academies and the global reach that they had and now the Brexit aspect where you can't sign under 18s uh, in Britain anymore has further thrown it away so we're we're in a total um time of disruption with our youth production and everything that's going on look there's a huge amount of uh, it's a whole i know you've done uh, panels and things about irish youth development and the academies with the league of ireland clubs and, and the schoolboy um situation and the, the controversies o- over that and the rows about what's the right way of doing it you know we have a lot of hope in terms of young players the under 21s had a really good win away in bosnia the other day they were very you know from what i saw of it they were looked very impressive but Stephen Kenny's under 21s were very impressive as well. There's no guarantee that it's it's going to come through. These lads need to need to make their way in the professional game and and get games under their belts, and that is a huge factor into into why Stephen is, is is struggling. You know, aside from the the lads he did pick, you know, our top scorer yesterday in the, in the squad, sorry, top scorer in the squad for this game was James McLean with 11 goals in 83 internationals. Next next up. Uh, Shane Duffy and he's on five now uh, two of the strikers of two each try park at two against Andorra so you know it's th- th- there's no like we, tw- we had 21 shots in goal and five on target I know the quality of those shots you can you, those chances you can question Gavin Cooney of the, the 42 I just saw tweeted there that I don't know if people are into the uh, expected goals thing but if they are I think he said our, our expected goals were uh, around the two mark and uh, Azerbaijan's were uh, put 0.28 so uh i would, I would take i'd take that uh, any day <laughs> a two a two nil would uh, would have done yesterday but it's just that the kenny thing is is, is you're right john it's, it's two it, there are two, a lot of different debates going on here i mean my point about what brian Kerr and damien delaney were saying yesterday is was he get did he get the selection and the tactics wrong for a game and um, no matter what's going on behind the scenes with developing players and developing young players a manager one of his jobs uh, is to get the tactics right and the selection right and he will he he does have to be judged on that uh, on an yeah. ongoing basis as well that's, that's part of a manager's um you know key performance uh, in the kpis kpis okay we got to take a break tommy martin and michael verney all i can say is this is the biggest show in town the unquestionably the republic of ireland soccer team is the biggest show in the country i'm almost feel like is michael martin listening can we get some investment from somewhere? Uh, can we get some help? Because uh, we, we're, I think we're all frustrated and there's lots of reasons for that and there's lots of factors and I don't think there's an easy answer to get out of this, but uh, hopefully we will and we have a lot of energised debate uh, on, on, on 53106 in our text machine. Uh, seriously, if our expectations don't include beating Luxembourg and Azerbaijan at home, we might as well give up, says Paul. Well, Paul, keep the faith in some way if you can. We might beat Serbia on Tuesday. We're going to be back with the Sunday papers after two. The ladies' football final today, the All-Ireland final next week. Plenty to look ahead with Tommy Martin and Michael Vernon. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball here on News Talk. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy until seven, as well as listening on News Talk. You can watch us on the digital and social channels for Periscope on Twitter at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. We're joined uh, on the Sunday Paper Review by the Virgin Media broadcaster Tommy Martin and the Irish Independent sports writer Michael Verney. Just update you on some scores uh, from around the block in terms of the Solheim Cup. Um, Europe went into today five and a half to two and a half ahead against the United States and Ohio, and at the moment. Uh, 
they are open two matches in the foursomes. So Leona Maguire, two points yesterday, and Mel Reid are three up at the moment on their opponents, and including Nettie Corda, through six holes. Europe open another match, one match is all square, and the United States open one match. So open two, all square in one, and Dan in one, looking very promising for Europe in the Solheim Cup. And Leona Maguire, what a performance, the Cavanagh. Uh, Wicklow won the Junior Ladies Football Championship final 217 to 19 over Antrim at the moment in the Intermediate Ladies Football final. It's Westmead 1 5, Wexford 2 points at the first quarter break. Obviously, our discussion so far has been dominated by the Republic of Ireland and their draw against Azerbaijan last night. I just really admire people who text in or send in a message or an email of um, significance and this is what I want to read out on 53106 Stephen Kenny's doing great not just for the now but for the future he's never used COVID injuries or other things as an excuse he's never said we don't have the players a la O'Neill Keane Trapattoni and numerous pundits he believes in who he is supports them and always G's them up they could do with paying him back because Kenny didn't miss the target from 10 yards Coleman did Kenny didn't put a corner and free kick into the keeper's hands McLean did Kenny didn't pass the ball out of play Malumbi and Horgan did the players have let Kenny down in many instances but he sticks by them and never brings up these failings that could cost him his job if someone does come in down the line they'll be grateful for all the work Kenny's done in bloodying these players and instilling a new football culture in Irish players Charlton gave us some glory days but inherited Hewson, Brady, McGrath Galvin, Stapleton, Lawrence and etc from own hand and Liam Toohey Charlton then dismantled all that work by capping the likes of Alan Curran and Tommy Coyne I'm not sure, too sure if that's fair uh, Brian Kerr handed O'Shea Robbie Keane Duff Dunn etc from the underage ranks to Mick McCarthy for his glory days people may not be great full of Kenny now but these players and his football will come good either for him or his successor another texture with respect the Irish national football team is only the biggest show in town for the middle aged and above it's a complete anomaly to find many under the age of 40 who would suggest the national team is anything other than a passing interest apart from the odd bandwagon jumping opportunity every couple of years it doesn't really register the FBI can't sell their tickets the RFU can't sell enough again I would respectfully suggest the biggest show in Ireland is beamed in from the Premier League says Carl and Cork it might sound crazy would be worth putting Shane Duffy up front. He's our top scorer over the last few years, our biggest threat. Think he would have beaten Luxembourg, Slovakia, Azerbaijan had he been there for the 90. What do we have to lose, Tommy Martin? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Let's give it a go. No, uh, yeah, we tried everything else. I got the first um, email on uh, Stephen Kenny. I completely agree with him. Like, I think he's been. It's, Looking quite, you can you can question his judgment on games. Whether you know we played great, we, we should have won four one. You can argue or disagree, whatever. But he's been full of so full of class and and done all the right you know said and done all the right things. And you know his his character is unimpeachable in terms of how he's looked after, how he talked about the players and 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 the intent behind the his stewardship is 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 all good. Like and like I hope I hope that person is not is is not right that somebody else would get the benefit of all the good work that he's done in um, in bringing these guys through I mean look, even the improvement in Adam Eda in one year is is testament to, to, to what can be achieved by young players who um, who in the progression that, that he can make and I just hope I hope Kenny gets a chance to to bear 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 the fruits you know 
Okay, Tommy Conlon, I think there's a degree of resignation to his piece in the Sunday Independent. I'll just read a bit out. Ignore the fact Portugal had enjoyed 70% possession. This is the other night. That they had 29 shots in goal to 14 corners to Ireland's three. That they'd launched some 50 crosses into the Irish box. But in the ongoing search for green shoots of recovery in Irish international soccer, most of those inconvenient statistics were brushed under the carpet. Indeed, the result itself was almost brushed under the carpet. We'll come back to this maybe before the end of the paper review, but I do want to move on, Michael Verney, to the ladies' football final today in Dublin and me that 4 15. History going to be made one way or the other. Yeah, big time, John. And do you know what? The, the most startling thing of it all is it's great to see uh, the level of coverage across the papers. Um, Cindo alone has, you know, six pages on the three uh, ladies' finals today. I think the four pages on the senior final and two, one on the junior and one on intermediate, um, which I just, I just don't think we would have seen in recent years. So the whole 2020 campaign um, has definitely had an, a massive impact uh, media-wise. I think every, everywhere has upped their game big time and realise that these games deserve an awful lot more coverage than they were getting and it's not just you know it's not just coverage it's some really really good in-depth interviews profiles and different things that are going on um, like the Mead story is definitely going to uh, garner most of the attention today they're like it's been a remarkable turnaround in 2015 Cork beat them by 40 points in a qualifier. A year later, uh, Westmead absolutely annihilated them at senior level as well. Uh, they put their hand up then to look to be regraded uh, in for the 2017 year. They went back to intermediate. Uh, they got to a semi-final that year, but crucially, they got Eamon Barry on board, uh, or Eamon Murray, I should say, um, after being coaxed several times. He said no to the job many, many times, um, but because he loves working, prefers working with underage talent, and then seeing them flourish at senior level. But they eventually twisted his arm. And it's been a remarkable four years since. So, you know, any of the players I was talking to said that they needed to go back. They needed to build from the bottom. They've definitely built from the bottom. Um, there's, there was probably even some bad results even in 2017 and 2018. But they got back to a semi-final uh, of the intermediate in 17. They got to the final in 18, final in 19, and eventually got over the line uh, last year. And when you're coming up to senior level, like no more than... You know, a team coming up from Christy Ring to Joe McDonough or Joe McDonough to Lee McCarthy level uh, in Hurling. It's very, very difficult to make a mark in that first year. But they've carried, you know, the swell of momentum from the final last December all the way into this year. They were also relegated to Division 3 of the league a couple of years ago. They won, they won Division 3, they won Division 2 in April. And now they're in an All-Ireland final, having having overturned that 40-point defeat to Cork in the semi-final in the most dramatic of circumstances. They were down seven points with five minutes to go and ended up drawing and then ended up winning by two points in extra time. It would be it would be an unbelievable fairy tale. Uh, and I think so many people have bought into this Mead team. Uh, what do people think of, uh, or what do people remember most, apart from the hard edge that Mead had in the 90s and the late 80s? It's the green key pack jersey, and the ladies have key pack on the front of it, and it's just, it's maybe the men's rivalry with Dublin and Mead hasn't, uh, hasn't gone Mead's way, the Royals' way in recent years, but it will be some turn of events if they were able to win the senior today. Um, and they're getting they're getting most of the coverage today just because it's it's such a sensational story really really rising from the ashes yeah I, I really enjoyed the Mick Bowen piece as well in the Sunday Independent I thought that was a lovely piece That's, it's a brilliant interview yeah it's um, he's, he's such an interesting guy I know he's, he's he's done interviews with you guys as well I've, I've heard and 
you know, he's such a brilliant talker about coaching and, you know, improving players and, and managing teams and managing people and all that. I, he's, to me, he's a seriously impressive guy, uh, guy, like, you know, and, uh, but it, this is a piece, this piece again, like I, I, it just, there was loads of, loads of stuff I didn't know about him. Like there's a great sort of background about his father. Um, his father is from the, um, his father's buried in West Clare near La Hinch, but he was born in Fecal and, he went into he he went into uh, Minutes to study for the priesthood, but he left and he was told not to come home. So off he went to London, working for Bachelor's Beans. He ran an ice cream van around Dollymount, raised the money, put himself through college, and he ended up as vice principal of art school region in Marino. Um, and he was a you know he, he sounded like an incredible character. And I think these people like think when you get a little bit, we're going to come to Eamon Ho or, um, James Horan in, in in the Sunday Times in a minute. Like when you get this bit of background to these characters who are on the the national stage in these games it really adds to your sort of enjoyment and and uh you know sense of of, of the tapestry of, of the occasion and the rest of it then is just really interesting stuff about uh Bowen and he, how he he used to go when he started coaching um at a high level then he he coached um Claire's footballers for a year and he felt it was sort of his father had died at this stage and he felt it was almost like a a tribute you know to his father so he would drive down you know, in the in the lashing rain winter nights, down to to, to coach with uh, Colin Collins, down with the Clare footballers. Um, you know that sort of that sort of background is the sort of the, the character of the man. But there's a brilliant little coaching tip bit there that I thought it's, he's he's full of this stuff. As you've, if you've heard him interviewed on the radio or, or anywhere, he's got all these loads of these little things about coaching. You know, he says um, in his first year with the Dublin women's team in 2017. They brought in a biomechanist from DCU to observe the group. He says, I couldn't understand how, with the exception of three, every single one were kicking off their laces as opposed to their instep. You look at every single intercounty male footballer, they put the ball over the bar with their instep, with a few exceptions. Um, so what he's saying there is you're kicking off the smallest part of the foot where the bone is protruding, um, and it's you know it's less accurate. So he, he basically what he what he boiled it down to is that Bohan says that at an early stage in coaching, there was a tendency to accept lower standards in female players that if they could kick it anyway, it would do. So like that is the microscopic detail that he brought in um, to to his, you know, th those little coaching points, and then there's a stat then in 2016 in the All Ireland final they had a shot to score ratio of 32 percent. A year later, after working on that aspect, they had a sh shot to score ratio of 69 percent. So that's how you win All Irelands. I'm hearing a future Dublin men senior manager. I'm hearing that if they do the five in a row today. I wonder though because he, I wonder that with these guys. I mean. That that's like saying he hasn't given as much in the last. No, not at years all. Not at as, all. As Jim Gavin, I, I think, I think with Jim Gavin, because he actually talks about Jim Gavin, and he says he, he he came on the phone to him and he was eating chips down in La Hinch with with Mick Bowen's brother, and he says he was joking and Gavin saying, "Oh, you can't be having burgers and chips. You're still on the telly. I'm finished. I can eat whatever I want." And he's saying how Gavin sounded like a different fella because when he he was involved, Bowen worked with Gavin at one stage in Dublin. Uh, he was so rigid and that's the way he formed himself over a period of time and from his training like he was a different person now that he's out of it and you kind of wonder if someone like Mick Bowen has probably done the exact same level of intensity with, with the Dublin women's team over the last uh, half decade and I'd say he, maybe maybe once this cycle is done he, he may, you'd wonder whether you'd, you'd have you'd, you know you'd want to go and do that again and not take a little bit of time out yeah, Cora Staunton will be with us for the Dublin Meath game and she'll be joining us from Croke Park about half three. 
one of the things I took out of it, and it's not really even sporting related, was the trips he was making to Clare to work with the Clare footballers and the, you know, you, you know, a dry day like today, you're relaxed, but with the wind and the rain howling, it's a 400 kilometre round trip. I ended up honestly with pains in my neck from these trips, and I remember thinking, wondering, how do people do this? And I'm just thinking of people out in the country at the moment who have long commutes to work, and I really hope that I know the government wants blended working as the pandemic gets into a new phase, but I really hope the option is there from employers for some remote working because. <laughs> You know, when you can't get outside two kilometres of your home, when you can't see your loved ones, when you can't give them a hug for months, when people have passed away. I hope there are learnings, I hope there are lessons from this pandemic about the way we live our lives and we just don't go back to two years ago uh, when, when we look at that. And I think the commutes are important and, and being able to be with more time with your families, I think, is important. Um, Incidentally, John, there will be many people in Mayo that would uh, be of the opinion that the pandemic has helped them massively with a lot of guys being able to relocate to Mayo and not being finishing work in the city at five o'clock and trying to get back for training and things like that. So there will be a lot of people, um, and I know it has been discussed even in the Mayo camp about the benefits that COVID has given to them. So I would definitely echo what you say there. Um, uh, hopefully we won't return to the rat race that we were in for so long. Yeah, I walked out of the office yesterday and it was great to see uh, hospitality open outdoors and a thriving city again. But I'm just wondering, are there learnings? Have people taking a, a breath around this it, it, it just seems like very quickly that we're, it's getting back to normal and ways that's good and in other ways I think we need to ask questions about that as a society um, speaking of Mayo Michael uh, I, I, I laughed out loud at the Joe Brawley piece in the Sunday Independent today when he was talking about culture and not really about Mayo but more about his own uh, story I thought was quite funny yeah well it was, a, it was about his own story but he was definitely uh he was definitely having a go at Mayo, which would be uh, seems to be in Joe's DNA at this stage. But just I just started off at the start of the piece because I think it's important to to read that before we go into his own little stories. Uh, he just said the day after Tyrone had overpowered Kerry physically and mentally in Crow Park, the Mayo captain, um, which he doesn't mention by name, but it's obviously Aidan O'Shea, Mayo captain featured in a spread in the Sunday World magazine. He was pictured running out of the sea onto a sandy beach, wearing only beach shorts, curiously holding a mobile phone in his right hand. He talked about his Kerry girlfriend having to wear red and green in the final, not green and gold, and not too subtly uh, promoted a smartphone company. Um, and he said it could have been something straight out of the pages of Love Island. We will be waiting a while for the Tyrone captain, Park Hampsey, to invite the readers of Hello into, a, into his Coal Island home, modelling Egyptian cotton pajamas and showing his heart shaped. Uh, showing his heart-shaped swimming pool. I, I, I do enjoy Joe's columns. I think um, some of the attacking of players' characters is unnecessary and totally. Is he not been a bit tongue-in-cheek though here? Uh, it, it has been a bit tongue-in-cheek, but when you're when you're doing it week in week out, uh, where possible, and you know, I remember a column about a column about Rob Henley, um, you know, in the weeks after the All Ireland final, where he uh, where he ended up giving away a penalty with black carded that just. Uh, to me, attacked his character, and I, I, I didn't, I didn't particularly like it. But um, he obviously starts off that with Mayo, and then he starts going into his own career. And in fairness, when Joe starts telling stories of things that happened in his own career, it's always uh, hugely entertaining. So he talks about basically in 1997 when he was playing uh, club football that he basically kind of lost the run of himself a bit, and. Uh, he, uh, he, he talks about how they'd been beaten I think in two county finals and he said in the first round of the Derry Championship in 1997 I played around the edges of the game we drew at Glen Ullen and were lucky to survive before the replay as we were waiting to go onto the field Jeffrey McNichol a Dungiven supporter Joe obviously plays for Dungiven came into the changing room Jeffrey is a big brute of a man who isn't afraid of any, anybody 
boys, he said, there's something that has to be said and I'm just going to say it. Raleigh, you are making a show of yourself. You're making a show of the team and of the town. You think you're better than the rest of us. Stop being uh, an a-hole. That's all I have to say, boys. Good luck today. And with that, he departed and he, Joe said you could hear a pin drop and he said they went out and absolutely destroyed their opposition and I think they, they ended up winning the county championship that year. And the, 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 the kernel of the story is is about not having uh, egos within a squad and having everybody pulling in the one direction. But like, it, it does have to be said, like he's, he's basically comparing Tyrone and Mayo and essentially saying that he, but he it's his opinion that Mayo uh, have certain egos within their squad and that they're not pulling in the one direction and that Tyrone are pulling in the one, or one direction, which I think is like, I think it's un, unnecessarily harsh to say that, you know, ego has been what, you know, prevented Mayo from getting over the line in the last 10 years. The best team that has ever played Gaelic football is essentially what stopped Mayo getting over the line in the last 10 years. He also, Joe also starts talking just about um, about how the dubs, dubs had a rootless, high-performance culture, and he said this appears to be loosening. He said Desi Farrell dropping James McCarthy as captain for his club mate Johnny Cooper, whose best days are behind him. Joe's words, not mine. Looks like a political decision, not a performance one. The message to the group could easily be interpreted as, I wanted my own club man to lift Sam Maguire. Firstly, my own club man. Secondly, we are going to win Sam. I'm doing this for nostalgic reasons for a guy I like. Um, fairly uh, hard-hitting opinions, dare to say the least. But he, at the end of it, the caveat of the piece at the end, then again, it says, everyone loves Mayo and it's, and it's people. What's not to love? But winning at this level is an entirely unsentimental business. Tyrone or Millwall, no one likes them and they don't care. Liberated from the heart era, they are an implacable and unpredictable opponent that will go to the bitter end. And he says, I fear for Mayo. And he's basically predicting uh, a Tyrone win for some of the reasons that he has suggested within the piece. In fairness, um, it has given people plenty to talk about in the six days before the All-Ireland final. I, I will give that to Joe. Mayor in the final. <laughs> Mayo are in the final. So yeah. whatever we talk about culture, they're in the final. They're 70 minutes away from winning All-Ireland for the first time in 70 years. They're the facts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So all of the other stuff is entertaining. It, brilliant commentary at times, but a, a lot of it is just noise until we see what actually happens on the pitch. I think the, the great thing about the, the All-Ireland reading in the papers is I think Mark O'Shea in the mail hits the nail on the head. And it's a very simple point. He's given his take on, on, on you know, the final, what's to come. And, you know, he talked about who the Mayo were maybe expecting Kerry and, and they got Tyrone and how that will affect the psychology of the whole thing. He says, you know, he's not so sure anymore now about what, what's going to happen. In truth, and I think this is at the core of why Saturday's final is so engaging for so many of us, I'm really struggling to imagine how this game will play out. And that sense of uncertainty, of genuine intrigue, is surely the best gift our game has been given in an age. That is the most important point to make about this season's All-Ireland Football Championship. You know, I live in North Dublin. I'm a member in St. Vincent's GA Club. I live in the belly of the beast. But my God, thank God the Dubs are beaten this year. And I say that as someone's a massive admirer of everything they did, over their, their team over the last few years. But the senior inter-county GA men's championship badly needed what we're going to get next week whether whether this is a great Mayo team or a great Tyrone team or an average Mayo team or an average Mayo team we have a genuine all the previews come at it from a different angle there's some people say Mayo have it I think Michael Foley has a preview where he says Mayo will finally come through 
Brody says Tyrone, Mark O'Shea says Tyrone, somebody else says Mayo. What's going to happen? Who's going to mark who? It is all out there now, and it is invigorating, and it has just, it, it's, you know, it's, it, I cannot wait for, for next Saturday, and I think it's just, it's just brilliant uh, to have that again, that sense of, you know, sport is, the essence of sport is uncertainty and competitiveness and intrigue, and we've got it now for next Saturday. It's that unpredictability. We don't know what's going to happen. And like, you couldn't have predicted the, the final pairing. With anyone with the best will in the world couldn't have predicted the final pairing going into the semi-finals. And I don't think that, that's what's so great about Saturday's final. No one could confidently predict what's going to happen. You, you just couldn't. Uh, and you couldn't you wouldn't have predicted that Mayo would even get to an All-Ireland final without Killian O'Connor as well. So uh, nothing is impossible going into Saturday. And that's what makes it so intriguing. And I totally echo what Tommy says. We, ne- we needed that. We needed something different. Uh, sport is about things happening that maybe you don't foresee or you just can't believe will happen and they probably both happened in the two semi-finals and uh, you'd be a brave brave person to call how next Saturday is going to go on and that's brilliant that's that will just have people glued to their televisions and it will have people taking people's hands off to be one of those 41,500 people that are in Crow Park on Saturday yeah, we wouldn't have predicted as well that Meath would have won the minor All-Ireland this year, that Offaly would have won the under-20 All-Ireland. You have Tomas O'Shea in your backroom team there, the footballers now under John Mahon. We had John Mahon on the show extolling his virtues yesterday on the panel. Uh, Michael, have his, the appointment been warmly received by the faithful folk? Yeah, unbelievably uh, warmly received, John, to be honest with you. Nobody would have really seen that coming either. Um, um, and I, I remember, funnily enough, I, I remember being in the press box for the under-20 All-Ireland. I was working that day and Tomas was sitting up the back and it kind of struck me at the time, but I didn't really take much notice of it. Then, uh, like, when the news came out, I was like, oh, that's interesting. That makes a bit, that makes a bit of sense now. Um, from our point of view, uh, there's so much buzz going around Offaly, um, particularly, particularly over the last three or four months with the under-20s. The hurlers getting promoted to Division One, the hurlers winning the Christie Ring, the footballers getting promoted to Division Two, um, and this is just yet another, um, you know, kind of yet another feather in our cap. Since since Shane Lowry came on board um, financially in April, so many things have happened. There's so much goodwill around the county. Like, there's no point in saying any different. We we couldn't have even contemplated getting someone like Tomas O'Shea up until now. We just wouldn't have had the structures in place we wouldn't have had I think to be honest we wouldn't have had the people in place to lure someone of his calibre like he's essentially going to leave his job as an Irish independent columnist and his job as you know as a Sunday game analyst one of the best in the business to go and work with our county and make probably uh, probably three drives a week up from his Cork base up to the faithful fields in Kilcormock and like there's players absolutely buzzing you would have heard John saying his phone was hopping with different players there was players probably maybe thinking about stepping aside that I'd imagine would definitely not be thinking about stepping aside now there's guys who would have seen Tomas in the Sunday game, younger guys in particular, and would be just hanging on his every word. So I think he has so much to offer us. And it's a sign of where we've come uh, as a county, you know, really since since Michael Dignan took over as chairman. So many good things are happening. And uh, it's interesting, like, some commentators were, you know, were given out that M- Michael was on duty for RT some days, maybe, that Offaly were playing. 
And it's funny now that one of the days he was on duty for RTE, he was still in Offaly mode and he was down Lauren Tomas to, to Offaly. And it's just, it's, it's just an unbelievable buzz around the place. And it's, things are happening now that we couldn't have foreseen or we wouldn't have thought possible, which is, and that's, that's what it's all about. The wheel can turn very, very easily when the right people are steering the wheel. And we definitely have the right people steering it at the moment. OK, well, the best of luck to Offaly. Just to let you know, in the Solheim Cup, five and a half to two and a half Europe led overnight against the United States at the moment in the morning foursomes in Ohio. Uh, they're up in two matches. They're down in one and level in one. But Leona Maguire again up in our match. Won two points yesterday and Mel Reid and Leona Maguire three up on their opponents at the moment in the Solheim Cup. Just amazing performance. Leona Maguire is going to win a major golf tournament, I feel, not too f- in distant future. <laughs> the way she's played as a rookie this year, uh, I just think she's got it. She has it. Had it as an amateur. It's going to have it as a pro as well. And uh, Dermot Calise will join us about half six to go through her progression and the Ryder Cup as well coming up in the next few weeks. Um, just to back to the Mayo-Tyrone game, Tommy. Uh, James Horn is a great piece of Michael Foley in the Sunday Times. Um, I, I love the line because James Horn works for Coca-Cola and obviously there's a, a degree of process if you're working for one of the biggest companies in the world. He Coca-Cola eyes Mayo, says one backroom team member. <laughs> or former yeah, backroom team member. It's such a, like when you were, we were having the discussion about Joe Ronnie's piece and Joe's, you know, um, had a bee in his bonnet about a so-called celebrity culture within Mayo. I think he's it's mostly directed towards his what he perceives about Aidan O'Shea um, rather than Mayo as a whole. Um this you read this and you kind of think well certainly James Horan is not any guy to um, entertain any sort of individualism because it's it's you know there's a whole lot of great stuff about how he has you know he really wants to you know make Mayo into a systematic winning machine and before we get to that though I always think like if you tell me something I don't know I haven't known about this guy you know brilliant that's I'm, I'm already i'm really glad i read the piece and this this piece is worth buying the sunday times for alone because maybe people knew all this stuff but i didn't realize how james horn apparently was was like not cut out or not seen as being cut out for for football management at all um the piece says no one had ever seen him as a coach during his playing days the club had been thrilled for years by his brilliance as a footballer um in parallel with his reputation as a player who despised the drudgery of training one so laid back he dozed off in a mayo dressing room one day before a game against roscommon and it's a quote there um, from an old Mayo player unnamed and said if you'd ever pick out one player from our batch as the last one to ever manage Mayo he'd have been that player but then he goes on to explain I didn't realise that his dad had moved to uh, New Zealand and I think his mother presumably must be from New Zealand uh, and he's got a, a, a he's got connections uh, over there says Horan has spoken about his affection for the culture of brilliant basics and ceaseless self-improvement that underwrites the all-black tradition he said the parallels between New Zealand and Mayo were evident, a place with a modest population obsessed by a single sport, constantly craving success. But New Zealand was different in ways Horan wished for Mayo too. He'd have found the whole West of Ireland thing very frustrating, says Tom Prendergast, who grew up with him and joined him as a Mayo selector uh, in tw- until 2014. The Mayo lads not wanting to prepare too well, not wanting to put themselves out there. He was just pissed off with this Mayo-ness, this excess of humility. So he said, we'll prepare properly and figure out step by step what needs to be done. Uh, we'll get the data. We'll take control of our destiny. And I think that the theme of the piece is that Horan is at odds with the noise around Mayo, the hullabaloo, the kind of daftness and the madness around them he is at odds with that he is this guy who wants to make it you talked about the coca-colization process and um you know 
work look at every little logistical detail and make sure it's right and eventually you'll get to the top of the mountain and i guess the conclusion is are they, are they going to get to the top of that mountain that process that he's been you know he did it for three years and then he stepped away and he stepped back basically a decade uh, working on I think they're going to get there. I do think they're going to get there. I don't need. Oh, John, keep your mouth shut for six days, will you? Be people absolutely. People are on high and mayo people, already. People don't. People don't. Higher. People don't listen to what I what I say. Um, <laughs> I, I said yesterday that Stephen Kenny should get a new contract before the games. So people don't listen to what I say. <laughs> don't worry about that. Don't worry about it's that. Mayo people. Though, like you're looking at, you know, Tyrone only have three in their history, and Mayo have one in, in seven. I'm a relentless years, optimist yeah. and, and a relentlessly positive person. So Mayo, you are going to do yeah. it next Saturday. <laughs> Um, we're going to take a break here on the Sunday Paper Review. Michael Verney from the Irish Independent and the Virgin Media broadcaster Tommy Martin back in a few moments' time. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball on News Talk. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy until seven today with the Sunday Papers. Tommy Martin from Virgin Media and the Irish Independent's Michael Verney. Picking out the best stories of your Sunday in September. Uh, you can listen to us on News Talk and also watch us on the digital and social channels for Off the Ball, for Periscope on Twitter, at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. Uh, rugby wise, Willie Anderson's got a book out with Brendan Fanning, and there's a bit of a serialization of that on the Sunday Independent today. Uh, talking about the hacker in 1989, Tommy. It was good fun, I thought. Yeah, it's very enjoyable. It's like it's every every time you read any you know stories or, or books or, or stuff about the old days in rugby, like it's it feels like you you know you might be reading something from Victorian times compared to what 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 it's like today and what we know it's like from 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 the professional era. You know that he's talking about Jimmy Davidson, who was the the manager at the time. And what did he get? They were only allowed forty eight hours to gather before a game against the All Blacks because anything more would have been uh, the evil of creeping professionalism. It was insane, is the line that, that that's used in the book. And the story of the, the, the hacker, I think, it's, look, it's worth gra- grabbing and reading how it is. It's very funny. I mean, at the end of the day, they lose the game. What did it say? We lost the game, but we won the dance. You know, so yeah. it's like, it's tremendous fun. Yeah, talking about just smoking a few beers at Grand Fox in the changing room afterwards. They had absolutely no problem with us. I'd say a few of them are glad to tell the story from the winner's perspective. Uh, also yeah. goes on in the Sunday and though Draco had a bit of a wild side. So it's worth checking out, folks. Uh, those rugby stories, Nick Popplewell and Mick Alway have been great fun when they've been on with us in the last few weeks and talking about the Lions and the, the Illicadoos and all those kind of stories. And it is a completely different world. And um, when we look at racing, Michael, uh, there's a couple of things. There's a Champions Weekend next weekend. So Colin Keane has done a couple of interviews. He's the top flat jockey in the country, going to go for over 130 winners, I'd say, by the end of the season. He's already got over 100. And then we have Gordon Elliott back in the limelight. He served his time, as it were, in inverted commas. Uh, and I think that's fair enough. And I think we all need to move on from that. Yeah, uh, it's obviously going to be a big week. Um, Champions weekend is next Saturday and Sunday. Um, probably one of the races potentially of the year and potentially uh, even bigger than that it's looking like Tarnawa and St. Mark's Basilica are going to clash in the Irish Champions Stakes which uh, I think was initially billed for uh, sometime after 4 o'clock but they've moved it forward a couple of hours with the All-Ireland Football Final there's a really interesting uh, interview with Dermot Weld uh, with, by David Jennings in the Racing Post and the Colin Keane stuff is in a couple of different places in the Times and it's in the Independent Colin Keane's a really interesting one from a point of view, uh, like he's going for his third Irish Jockeys Championship at the, he, I think he made the Century of Winners, I think it was last weekend, last Saturday, 
and I'd safely say that he flies that much under the radar that you know only you know real ardent racing folk would actually know what he looks like. But what he is one of the best in the world, uh, being compared to Frankie de Tory uh, in many in many circles, he's he's just so good at what he does. Would ride predominantly for Jar Lines. An interesting dynamic with with, uh, with him and Jar Lines. He's he's gone out with with Jar's dog. Um, and Jar would be notor notoriously hard-nosed, a uh, brilliant, brilliant trainer, but he'd tell it like it is. But I asked him during the week whether he'd ever fallen out with Jar or anything like that, but yeah, I don't think he would dare go on, uh, again, on Jar's bad side. He's probably got too much riding on it. But this year, um, uh, you know, he's riding an awful lot more for Dermot Weld, and it was interesting to hear him talking. And Don McLean and Daryl Coor have both talked about here. Jar uh, will get, it's, you would not see this with many trainers, but Jar Lines will basically give him the freedom uh, to go and ride for another trainer in a race if he feels that he doesn't have that good of a chance of winning in that race himself, which is unheard of, really. Um, and he's had over 130 rides, I think, for Dermot Weld already this year. And the reason he started riding for Weld predominantly was that uh, he was over uh, in Keeneland. I think it was Keeneland last year for the to ride Siskin for Geraldine's in the Breeders' Cup and Christoph Sumion was ruled out of the ride on Tarnawa and he was basically sitting getting his lunch and he got the call ended up being you know the biggest win of his career now he's riding an awful lot for Dermot Weld he's riding obviously a lot for Ger Lines, and he's riding a lot for an awful lot of other trainers but just uh, a supreme talent looks like he's going to break Joseph O'Brien's tally of 126 winners in a season uh, that's the highest it's ever been achieved by an Irish flat jockey um, obviously Champions Weekend is going to be discussed in detail over the week but I think Gordon Elliott's, uh, Gordon Elliott's return after his six-month suspension uh, this Thursday is definitely going to be a big part of the conversation this week and uh, I don't think it'll overlook at Champions Weekend but it will definitely be a big part of the conversation and there's uh, you know a small bit of an interview with him in the Racing Post today or a snippet of a larger interview that's going to appear tomorrow and just the main lines out of the word that he, he says he still lies in bed every night thinking about NVLN. NVLN of course was his stable star which uh, left his, you know, his culinary yard in the wake of the, the scandal in March, and he subsequently got a six-month suspension. Uh, he's been very, very uh, under the radar. He promised that he wouldn't appear in an Irish race course during that time. He hasn't. Um, I would echo what you said, John, as well. He has he's served his uh, suspension. He served his time. It's, it's time for us all to move on. But it's going to be really, really interesting just to, to read this piece. Um, the main quote that they have just teeing up the interview tomorrow is, I just hope people can forgive me. Um, and I'm sure he went through a lot of really, really uh, tough times and tough moments when you know, horses that were in his care were winning and, you know, the various abuse and that that would have been sent his way as well. But I think, as you said, I think it's time to move on now. And uh, I'm sure he'll get back to doing what he does best and that's training winners from uh, from Thursday onwards. Yeah, and I hope when he, when he does train winners that he speaks about it and, and talks mm. about the horses and the winners that he has, if he's at Cheltenham and all that. And that there's not a wariness of that. I think people people are people are forgiving folk, and we move on. We draw a line under it, and look, it was it was a, a, a situation for the horse racing authorities to deal with, and they dealt with it. Uh, yeah, as you say, John. Like I, I hope he just talks about you know in the wake of these winners, just his passion for the game. Because I've been up in his I've been up in his yard numerous times, and to see how it has developed, uh, and you know how it's multiplied in size 
the thing underpinning that is his passion for the game and his vision for the game as well. Like he's second only to Willie Mullins, who is you know going to be regarded as the greatest jumps trainer of all time. So yeah, I just I hope he I hope he opens up, and I think if he opens up, I think people will be a lot more open to him. But uh, I, I expect business as usual to resume for him when he gets back in, and he's coming back at the perfect time. The jump season will be kicking off, you know, probably in the next you know six to eight weeks. Um, so we're going to be seeing plenty of him from now on. Interesting nugget in the Colin Keane piece in this on Independent with uh, Dara Kahura. I look after myself to some degree, try to eat right. At the start of the year, we do plenty of exercise to get the body in shape or to where it needs to be. When we're busy during the year, we don't need to do as much because we're race riding the whole time we're riding out. After that, I keep busy at home. If I'm not at home in my own place, I'm out helping my father in his place in the evenings. Just keep moving, keep busy, keep the head sane more than anything. Just always a little bit of word of wisdom. Keep moving, folks. You know, just be difficult with the routines and like, you know, very busy days, but trying to just keep moving and keep active it's good advice from Colin Keane sometimes it's very very simple stuff that we sometimes can forget um, the Sunday Times has a good bit of football uh, Tommy it has stuff about Ronaldo and a Man United player that I, maybe the diehard Red Devils would remember uh, John O'Kane who I suppose not for every Gary Neville and for every Roy Keane and for every Eric Cantona and Rude Van Nistelrooy there's a player who didn't especially make it as it were yeah, it's extraordinary. The the class of '92 sort of keeps throwing up stories of not just those who made it and, and made you know fame and, and riches beyond their wildest dreams and success, but those who didn't make it out of that uh, that generation and that team. And one like I I totally airbrushed this guy from my memory, but he did play. Uh, he did come on as a sub in the famous Alan Hansen uh, "You'll Win Nothing with ki- uh, with Kids" game in '95, when uh, Ferguson gave Beckham and uh, Gary Neville and a few of the younger other younger players their first um, first real sort of taste of it, and um, he he came on as a sub uh, in that game as well. This guy, John O'Kane, was a right back um, in that team, and Gary Neville actually played as a centre half and. He he basically um, suffers from autism, but it wasn't realised at the time. He didn't actually get diagnosed until his mid forties, and this this is a piece that is sad and very um, very revealing of how hard it must have been to be different uh, in in a football dressing room in that time and in, in anywhere really in that time when, as he says in the piece anything around mental health or, any, or, or there wasn't the same understanding if you were different it was a problem you know it starts by um you know he was born in nottingham in 1974 with two strong traits uh, a rare gift for playing football and an internal wiring which meant that having an actual football career surviving the hard knock conformist professional game ultimately proved impossible sorry this is an interview with jonathan norcroft by the way i think he has a book out about it but um this is a quote then he says people knew i wasn't all there in vertical commas that i thought differently and acted differently but in those days it was all about getting on with it the technical side was never an issue it was the other side of football that killed me coaches and players thought he's a laid-back kid technically good but a bit of a spaceman up there that's what they used to call me spaceman um Ferguson actually was quite understanding with him. He says he used to go to Fergie's office three or four times a day, or a week rather. Um, I think he said Ferguson, he think on, knew that he was vulnerable in some way, that he needed a father figure to chat to. And he said, look, John, if you sort this out, you're playing for me. You're better than Gary Neville. What's holding you back? You should be my right back. There's something in your head you've got to work out. But I didn't know how to work it out. I had a disability. 
which I didn't disclose, and that's down to me. So he, te he tells a story then about, you know, it, it went wrong really after the, the Villa game. He played in a UEFA Cup tie against Rotor Vol Volgograd in September 1995, and he saw his name listed at right back, and he, he couldn't handle it because he'd been playing left back for the, the reserves. So he asked Ferguson to switch him to left back, and Ferguson did, and he got he got skinned by the, the Russian um, uh, winger. Uh, that game and he never he never he was taken off after half an hour and he never his united career never uh recovered so he bounced down um through the leagues and there's an awful uh, you know he says eric harrison decided he was lazy you know uh, he was the youth coach at the time there's a, he, he ended up at everton and he said howard kendall then the everton manager made him feel free and he found the best form of his career in helping them avoid relegation in 1978 uh, Walter Smith then replaced Kendall, and the first thing Walter Smith told O'Kane was, I've heard you're a lazy bastard. Um, O'Kane says his shutters went up, all the negative thoughts came. He ended up training with the under-18s. I went to Smith's office. Uh, I said, what can I do to get in the team? I want to play. He said, get the F-U-C-K out, and that choked me. It's just crushing to think of a guy who, I don't I mean, look, maybe he, just the lack of understanding he, he had himself and the lack of understanding anyone had anyone else had for those around him even as recently as as 2019 on twitter he had a spat with neville because i think he's quite he, he was quite an anti-glazer um person and neville he was he was criticizing neville for not being strongly enough um anti-glazer and, and neville to, neville said he cowered when he was in a uh, was in a united sh shirt and it was a you know it wasn't a very um pleasant uh thing to happen but it, the piece ends really nicely it says he also remembers eric cantona out of the blue once saying to him in the dressing room don't be like everyone else cantona never spoke much and when he did it was like god talking it was a weird comment john says smiling maybe he saw something maybe he was telling me it's okay to be different yeah, we just got to apologise for the B word there, Tommy. Um, I, I like Walter Smith might have a different recollection of the conversation, but uh, if, if if that was the case, uh, that's grim reading, I have to say. And representative of a culture, yeah, er, representative of a culture that I would hope has changed for the better, and I would expect, and I, I would think that it has. Yeah, look, I, I, I absolutely. What I mean, look, what comes through there is the guy himself was ignorant of his own condition. Everybody in football was ignorant. It was, it was just you were supposed to be, get on with it. Uh, and if you were wired differently, as he puts it, it was just a really impossible uh, world. But it's interesting that people, Ferguson and Cantona, were two people who, who knew, who had the emotional intelligence to know and understand that there was something there um, and, and they, you know, they come out of it probably the best, uh, best, best of anybody. Uh, Michael, you've got a story to talk to us about cliff diving. I haven't even, I've decided not to read this because I want to see what you what you have to say about it. I think it's in the mail. Yeah, it's a, an interesting, really interesting interview with Mark Gallagher uh, with a fellow by the name of Gary Hunt. He's, he's from England, but it, the, the world uh, cliff, diving, cliff diving series is taking part in Dunpatrick Head in Mayo next week. It's actually, I think it's on next Sunday. So Mayo will either be in morning or everyone will be delighted around the time uh, that this is going on. But it's just, the picture was really what, what caught my eye. It's it's Gary Hunt standing on a, a springboard with, you know, a couple of thousand people to his right, a couple of thousand people to his left. 
uh, wearing a pair of speedos, multicolored speedos, um, with the words "budgie smuggler" written on written on the back of them. Um, it just looks so. Uh, it's such a scary looking but brilliant looking photo, and you just see everything that's ahead of him. Um, and he's a really, really interesting character. He's an eight-time, he's an eight-time uh, cliff diving world champion. And I think one of the most interesting parts of it is is that he's actually got a fear of heights. Um, and he talks about it here. He's from he's from Hampshire in England. He's actually relocated to France now. So he's actually um, he's actually hoping to dive uh, in the in the Olympics in three years' time for uh, for France. And he. Um, would have would have went up against uh, Tom Daly when he was younger. Tom Daly was a young up and coming diver in England, but he went from diving, uh, as was the normal diving that we'd associate to cliff diving, which is a little bit different. But just talking about uh, his fear of heights outside of diving, he just says, uh, Mark goes in here, he just says, so while there is an undoubted daredevil element to the sport, Hunt is more of a technician, although ironically his mastery of cliff diving has led him to develop a fear of heights. It feels strange to say, but when I am on a platform and there's water underneath, I feel safe, but I don't like going out on a balcony that is 27 or 30 metres up because I can feel that there is something pulling uh, pulling me to jump. The French call it l'appel du vide, the call of the void. I can't help but imagine what it feels like to jump, and that scares me, that I am being drawn to jump. So you'll never find me looking over the edge of a cliff or anything like that. And I kind of thought that was interesting because it's almost like uh, that's, you know, he's able to do this as a, you know, a performer and he's able to do it brilliantly. But in normal day life, he would never dream of being in heights. And it's almost like, you know, some players who are unbelievably expressive on a pitch and, you know, dominate a game and be so vocal. And then off the pitch, they could be completely different people or there mightn't be those sort of people that gel in crowds or anything like that. And I just thought thought this was a really interesting piece. When I saw it straight away, uh, do you remember... Um, Captain Lance Murdoch in The Simpsons, you know, the daredevil. That was immediately what, what, no, what I don't. thought of. It's, not, uh, it's nothing what, to do with the window, is it? No, no. No, no, no. He, he used to do all these mad uh, stunts on motorbikes, but he used to always have, he'd be in hospital all the time with broken arms. Like an evil Knievel kind of type. Yeah, kind of, yeah. And his body would basically be covered in cast. There was no time, I'd say, in The Simpsons where he was never covered in cast. But this is just a really interesting piece. Uh, and if people in Mayo next Sunday are looking to do something a little different after either winning in All-Ireland or losing in All-Ireland, maybe this will be a good way to kill a couple hours. It just, uh, You're not well, telling them to throw themselves from a great height. Well, <laughs> well I'm not. No, no, I'm well. not telling them to do that, Tommy. Um, Cliff dive uh, responsibly uh, with, uh, with <laughs> yeah, all the disclaimers. Yeah. Uh, with uh, Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in this. We don't have time to get into it, but just for, for, for people out there, uh, you know, it's the front page of the Business Post not the business post, the Sunday Independent Business and the Sunday Times Business, Flutter imposing a 500 euro cap on monthly losses for gamblers under 25. So um, a 500 euro per month net deposit limit will be introduced for all punters under the age of 25. Flutter plans to launch this by the end of this year or early 2022. This is the owner of Paddy Power. I think belatedly the gambling industry acting because they know that they've been a little bit out of sync with with what's been going on. Um, Tommy Martin, have you ever done skydiving or parachute jumps or anything like that? Um, no, <laughs> I'm quite happy on terra firma. I'm too old for that crack now. Michael, you, you spoke with such passion and enthusiasm about um, Gary Hunt. So have you done any of this stuff? Yeah, no, I have. I, I did a skydive in Las Vegas, actually, and I did uh, a bungee jump in Queensland. I was, uh, it, was, it was unbelievable. It was about 100 feet high, I think. Um, 
and it was $200 to do the first jump. But once you were up there, if you wanted to do another one, you could do it for $50. So I decided I'd get my value. So I was the first one to do it of my group, but then I did it at the end again. It's a, it's a crazy buzz, yeah. If uh, you, you do this almost like a swan dive off a little platform, um, it's unbelievable. There's actually another one in New Zealand where this is yeah, really, really scary, where there's water underneath you and they just let your head touch the water. That's how far they let you come down and then you come back up out of the water. So you look like you're going to hit water. Um, yeah, I, I actually wouldn't have been mad into heights then kind of overcame it when I was about 11 or 12. I remember going up really high in a school tour and I've loved them ever since. So, uh, yeah, I like, all, I like all that kind of thing. I, I, can't, I, can't, even this... handle, I can't even handle roller coasters. <laughs> Michael Verney, Daredevil. So, were you not nervous? Oh, oh yeah of course yeah but if you're able to overcome that initial nerve you just get that you get the buzz which is just incredible like it's I, it's the sort of thing like you'll only be able to do it for a certain length of time you might be you know in your 40s or 50s you mightn't be physically able to do it so i just said try and do all those things as much as i can and yeah you'll be able to when you're on your deathbed you'll remember doing all these mad things that you did so what's the bigger buzz the bungee jump or the uh, skydive Oh, the bungee jump was crazy, yeah, because it's it's you, you're by yourself and it's like a hundred feet and you just feel like you you don't have it you're careering to the ground almost and then obviously your harness kicks in. Uh, that's that's phenomenal, yeah, crazy buzz. Tommy, uh, just before we go, um, I think just to maybe point listeners to a couple of articles. I think there's some good soccer stuff ahead of the return of the Premier League next weekend. We got Ronaldo and back to United and all that kind of thing, and then Jonathan yeah, Wilson uh, as, as always. Jonathan Wilson has a good piece about the um, the petrol money, the, the impact of, of all that at the transfer window, what it says about where football is going and who's going to have the power now, basically the, the clubs that have in, are independently financed uh, versus the old super clubs. David Walsh has a good piece on the Ronaldo thing, which is thought-provoking. Can I just mention in yeah. the news section of the Sunday Times in their coverage of Afghanistan, um, headlines, a small piece at the bottom, Italy welcomes Afghan sportswomen in race of their life to flee the Taliban. Nothing we've talked about today can even compare with the reality of the female uh, um, sports people trying to get out of Afghanistan in, in the last few weeks. And there's a story here about a football team uh, in Herat uh, in Afghanistan who had to crawl through um, sewage um, to, to get to uh, uh, Kabul airport and get themselves out of um of afghanistan it's extraordinary stuff that for all for, that their lives were basically at risk for the crime of of kicking a ball around um when when the taliban uh, and the things the length they had to go to and the people who helped them to get out um look that's a serious hell of another level ahead of uh, the republic of ireland's problems and everything else we've been talking about yeah well said tommy martin tommy and michael verney thanks so much for as always great discussion over the last hour and a half and uh, have a gr great sunday and we'll speak soon cheers thanks, john. john cheers michael cheers tom the lads on the Sunday paper review there are going to be back after the news building up to the ladies final between Dublin and Meath with Cora Staunton just to let you know what's going on in the intermediate finalists Westmeath 216 Wexford 5 points and Europe up in three of the four matches against the United States in the Solheim Cup already taking a three point lead into this afternoon we're back after the news with more here on Off the Ball on Newstalk The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball 